Now entering Nerdist.com. Hey everyone, this is Ben Blacker, the creator and moderator of the Nerdist Writers Panel. I myself am a television writer, having written for such shows as Supernatural, Nickelodeon, Super Ninjas, and I'm currently working for the DreamWorks program Puss in Boots, which is available right now via Netflix. Uh, check it out. It's pretty fun. I am also the co-creator of the Thrilling Adventure Hour, a stage show in the style of old-time radio uh, that is available as a podcast here on the Nerdist Network. For information about the Thrilling Adventure Hour, go to thrillingadventurehour.com. Are you looking for some great ways to spend your money on writing-related events, as well as to feel good about yourself for giving to charity? Uh, Many of you have lamented that we are not doing many live panels anymore, so we're doing a live panel. On April 13th of this year, 2015, uh, at Largo at the Coronet here in Los Angeles, we'll be doing a panel called the Nerdist Writers Panel Presents Better Call Saul. This, again, happens on April 13th. That's a few days after the finale of the first season of the terrific AMC series Better Call Saul, the spinoff of Breaking Bad, which has so many of the same writing staff and and a lot of the other key uh, personnel is the same too so we're going to have a lot of that writing staff on board and will there be special guests you bet there will be special guests we wouldn't do an event at largo without special guests so go to largo-la.com scroll down to april 13th and look for the orange nerdist writers panel logo and get some tickets for that best of all it benefits a26la the national nonprofit after school writing program uh, another way for you to spend your money is to go to italy Yeah, do it. But when you do that uh, in June, June 14th to June 27th, why not uh, take a screenwriting class? Why don't you sit with my comics panel co-host, Heath Corson, who's taking over this uh, Italian retreat in Orvieto, Italy. Uh, I've done it the past two years. Heath has taken it over this year, and he is terrific. He is a way better teacher than I am uh, because he has patience and likes you. Um, so to find out about that, go to pagecraftwriting.com and click on the Italy retreat link. Um, it's really worth it. We, we had a great time last year, not only just enjoying being in Italy, but a lot of people came out with some terrific, uh, scripts from that. Uh, some of, some of whom actually got to go and shop them around. So, uh, once again, that's pagecraftwriting.com, P-A-G-E-C-R-A-F-T w-r-i-t-i-n-g dot com and click on the Italy screenwriting routine and go to Italy with my friend Heath who is a terrific writer look him up Heath Corson also follow him on Twitter at Heath Corson follow me on Twitter at Ben Blacker come see us at Largo at the Coronet on April 13th with the Better Call Saul writers I think that's everything should we finally start this? let's do it they got the mustard all right thank you guys again for being here uh for this mutant enemy room reunion uh we're thrilled to have you uh if we could just start on my left here and go around and introduce yourselves and let us know which mutant enemy shows you worked on for how long and also where we may have seen your name recently Hi, it's David Greenwalt, and I worked on Buffy, I believe, for the first three years of Buffy, and then on Angel for the first three years of Angel, I think. <laughs> and uh, you can see me these days uh, at Grimm. 
Uh, hi, I'm Marty Knoxon. I was at Buffy uh, every season except uh, one. And I was a consulting producer on Angel for one season. And uh, right now, I uh, you can see me, uh, my name on Girlfriend's Guide to Divorce and soon Unreal. Yeah. Oh, nice. Cool. Boom. Mic <laughs> <My> drop. <laughs> I'm Tracy Forbes. I worked on Buffy in the fourth season. And most recently, I created a show in Canada called Cracked. Mm-hmm. <laughs> awesome. Hello, I'm Drew Goddard. Uh, <laughs> I was on the last season of Buffy and the last season of Angel, so I still <laughs> You're welcome. Well done. <laughs> and uh, that's about it. Yeah, nothing new coming up. Why? <laughs> <laughs> I am Steve DeKnight. I was on season five and six of Buffy, season four and five of Angel, season one of Dollhouse. Uh, recently, uh, Spartacus, and you'll see on April 10th uh, my name on Daredevil, created by Drew Goddard. Woo! Yeah. Oh my gosh! No wonder you need to be separated. <laughs> Your show friend, your show boyfriends. Uh, I'm Liz Craft. I was on seasons four and five of Angel, season one of Dollhouse, and currently I'm waiting to hear my fate on two pilots. <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> uh, hi, I'm Drew Greenberg. I was on season six and seven of Buffy. And I recently got pulled back into Mutant Enemy. I am on uh, Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Hi, I'm Jane Espenson. I was on seasons three through seven of Buffy. <laughs> Wrote a few Angel and Fireflies. Was on season one of Dollhouse. And I'm now at Once Upon a Time and uh, co-created Husbands with Brad Bell. Hi, I'm David Fury. I... Like Marty was on Buffy from season two on. I got to work on Angel all uh, five seasons. And uh, I was last uh, reportedly working on uh, 24, uh, Live Another Day, and uh, am currently consulting on the show Tyrant. Thank you. Thank you, guys. what they so call Jane here. wins for most shows. Sounds like she's not holding her on. The idea here is well, we kind of like to trace the DNA of a writer's room. Um, so I, I kind of want to look at these rooms that you guys were all vital parts of that, for the most part, Joss ran, uh, and kind of take apart the way those rooms worked and how they evolved over these series, and then what you guys took to future series. That's a lot, so we're going to break it down quite a bit. Um, And I'd like to start... um, Greenwald, you were at Buffy at the beginning. Uh, That's true, although he had made a... He, Joss, had made a presentation before I came there, but I was there from the real first episode Mm -hmm. on. So you were part of the original writer's room. That is correct. Uh, Can you describe how that first season was put together? Because I think everybody else joined after that, right? Um, Can you talk about how that first season was put together in the room with the writers? Uh, How were stories broken? No, I can't. (laughs) (laughs) This will be quick. (laughs) Um, Well, we were working with Joss, and uh, one of the things that Joss did, you know, we had a whiteboard in the room, and one of the things that Joss taught us was don't go to the board too early. Wait, 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 wait. 
until you have what it would supposedly be the best idea. And we looked for um, what we thought would be great twists in the those early Buffy's and in all of them to come. I'm thinking of this hyena episode mm. where we had uh, the principal got eaten by hyenas. <laughs> <laughs> but the story really broke when we figured out Xander would be one of them. That was the big thing. And I remember Jane Esmondson coming in, well, now this is mm. later, coming in one day to us and saying... What if Buffy could read minds? And that story was the one story that broke quickly in all those years. It was, was such a great idea. Was it generally, especially in the beginning, was it a, a difficult process figuring out what the show was, or did the show know early on what it was? Well, I think Joss knew what the show was pretty early on. It's, you know, the, the blonde girl goes up the scary dark alley and then kicks ass. And it was a metaphor for uh, coming of age. Uh, invisible girl is a great example, a girl who felt so insignificant that she was actually invisible. Um, and we spent a lot, I mean, Joss would be in there at 7 in the morning, every morning. Sometimes he slept there. I was very worried that he was going to go to a mental place this year. <laughs> and... Uh, and was that just the usual, like, the growing pains of a new series weighing on the showrunner and creator? Well, I think he felt uh, very strongly that this was a second chance to do Buffy the Vampire Slayer <laughs> and to do it right. Sure. And um, um, we would spend hours and hours in a room, a lot of pacing, a lot of tea. And uh, it's hard to, I don't know, other people should dive in, but it's hard to really describe the process other than a lot of sitting and looking at a blank board. It's really a lot, a lot of, of I remember. remember the chair calisthenics. Oh. Yeah. Joss would, um, there's two things I remember about his physicality. One was the crab walk. Remember the crab walk? He would walk over, hunched over, and he'd just do this little thing with his hands. Yeah. The crab walk. I didn't know he was tall until recently. <laughs> No idea. Um, and the other thing he used to do is like, like remember he'd like try to do weird things with his armchair, like yeah, like he'd make, lift it up over his head, lift it up or, his head or he'd like yeah slide down it. And um, he, there was a lot of like, and there's a lot of digressing. There's a lot of a lot of digressing. Yeah, that wasn't digressing at all. Yeah. <laughs> Those were productive. Yeah, very productive when he was lifting the chair over his head. Well, I'm curious about that. When by the time David and Marty and Jane, you guys got there, how was the room clicking? Because it seems like that's when the personnel of the room started to coalesce. I always feel like what you're talking about it was Joss wouldn't write anything on the board until it was ready and he was doing a lot of the pacing and working out in his own head so in a way it was a room that consisted of watching Joss <laughs> so many of the things were generated by him and were worked out by him in his own head so that it was the, I found the process very opaque mm-hmm. I don't know how we got there because I don't I don't feel like I had anything to do with this getting those episodes <laughs> broken I was watching Joss like go oh here it is was that the feeling that you guys had as well I think it was a matter of just trying. I think it was a matter of just trying to uh, spark ideas. You would you would, yeah, you would right. pitch, and something you know it would just start a little flame inside Joss's head. Or but suddenly, you couldn't tell if it had or not. Well, he would, he would often get very quiet, and he was like be staring off a little bit, yeah. and you didn't know if like. Is he paying attention to you? <laughs> or was or, he you thinking know, like, that was the dumbest thing Yeah, or was he thinking, exactly. You weren't quite sure, but uh, very often he was processing it. He was processing the idea because something, it, it, it flared something that, you know, and then you find out later when he comes in with the idea going, oh, yeah, there was a little huh. thing of me in there. And what's, I mean, what's interesting to me after talking to, especially you three early on in the writer's panel series is, you know, you guys always felt like, as, as far as I can tell, you did have a voice in there. 
and that it was, you know, as much your show as it was anyone else's show. That the well, it wasn't as much ours as it was. Well, sure. <laughs> I mean, among among the other writers, you know, like everybody had a voice. It, it seems like it was fairly democratic as far as pitching ideas and that sort of thing. Joss was very generous to us, I think, in terms of allowing our voices to kind of, when it was our scripts, ultimately he allowed us to execute them in our own way, even though the, the, the bones of it was something that, that he wound up uh, telling us this is what he wants. But he gave us tremendous freedom with that. And it was, I think it helped as unusual. I think, I think it helped that Buffy is unusual in that you could go week to week and have a different genre every week. Mm-hmm. And so I think that allowed for different voices to come through, even even though the story always was Joss's voice, mm-hmm. you could have different influences showing up. Yeah, that's a good point. And I, I would wonder, for the, those of you who worked on Angel as well, you know, these are, they're fungible concepts. Uh, and did that make it a harder target? Yes. <laughs> yeah. I was right. Yeah, because there's yeah, the absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's the difference between doing any show in the real world and a show that um, has limitless rules. You know, mm-hmm. you just constantly bang your head against. The thing that Joss used to say that I, you know, there's so many things that I took on with me. Um, so many things that other people don't do. So when you get out, I, 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 I feel like, not, you know, making a generalization for many of us, but I feel like there was a floundering period after the Buffy years because yes. none of us knew how it worked in the real world. And we all had been living in this bubble where, you know, we worked for a brilliant person who was also kind and, you know, mostly let us do what we wanted to do once we got this, you know, the story broken and um, also knew he was good at his job. So he didn't need to belittle us or, mm-hmm. you know, take credit yeah. for stuff that hmm. we did or you know, he actually, um, and so we, and also when we didn't want to do something, most of the time, one of us would just say, Joss doesn't like that idea, and then no one could go, oh. <laughs> and then we got into the real world, and I, you know, at least I can speak for myself, I just got pummeled, because um, I thought people were nice, and people, mm-hmm. you know, let you make the show that you had in your mm-hmm. heart, and guess what, not everywhere, and not always, um, but he used to talk a lot about, like, moves, things in a world that... When you're creating a world with rules, and, and for us, we had a different villain, you know, a monster of the mm-hmm. week in most episodes. So that would mean new rules for the, that monster and a mm-hmm. new goal for that monster every week. And that was the stuff that didn't really matter in a way. It was the it was usually servicing a character story. Mm-hmm. And often it was a metaphor for whatever the main point was. But you could get you could just put ten smart people in a room and watch them talk themselves into a corner about why, you know, the cast of phlebotanum, you know, shouldn't be at the temple. It should be over in the thing thing. And, you know, they're going they're doing like eight things to get to it and he'd walk in and be like why do we care about any of this? Like, you know, like, where's the where's the feeling? What's you know what's going on in the story? So I learned a lot about like, you know, what really ma- matters in terms of like keeping something as simple, but uh, you know, but also finding the twist. You know, and I think that's that's what most of us have taken with us is that notion of what's the buffy of it? Yeah. Why do we care? What is this really about? What does it mean? And you're only happy when she cries. <laughs> I always say that. We're only happy when Buffy cries. When fans get like, we want these people to get together. I'm always like, no, you don't. I wonder sometimes what Buffy would have been like if we'd had Twitter. Because we had a lot of fan interaction oh, we did. the show at that time. But nothing like what you get with Twitter. Yeah. You should have done real time now. Going, right. yeah. Because. <laughs> yeah, and I, I really wonder if we would have found ourselves being pushed this way or that way. There would have been a lot of reaction to stuff that people didn't at that time have the ability to react to in real time. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
Yeah. No, I was just saying on that point, emotion and clarity above all else, that mm -hmm. is what he always says, and that's like the one thing that Sarah and I, my writing partner, mm -hmm. I just repeat and tell whatever writers we come across. That's like, like mm -hmm. Josh Whedon says emotion and clarity above all <laughs> That's all you need to know. It sounds like Josh says gets you into and out of a lot of things. It used to. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, was that emotion and clarity? I mean, I think that's that's that really boils down, you know. I think what people responded to in so many of these shows um, was that baked in to pitches from the beginning. And I open this to anyone for any of the shows that you guys worked on. Well, the emotion and clarity are the only things that I'm interested in. And Joss and I, in the beginning, I think us, the rest of us, as we you know, kept doing the show, felt we were really crappy detectives. We were, really, <laughs> we were least interested in the detective mystery twist. And it, the twist, it was best when it had something uh, very emotional at the heart of it. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm trying to think of an example. Well, for example, Jane Espison's great story about Buffy could read minds. And at first it was really exciting. And then she started to hear what men really think about women, and then she wanted to beat her head, you know? Mm -hmm. And I have another one, the, um, the Xander, Xander Splitsing 2, where I, like, when I found out that Nikki Brendan has an identical twin, it was like, oh my god, like, do the he's split in two, there's a duplicate, the demon takes it, whatever, and Josh was like, I'm, he's not in that emotional place where there's anything in his life that's making him feel bifurcated. We have to wait until it's emotionally true. And I'm like, but you have But you have a twin! <laughs> How early did you pitch that? Oh, I was, as soon as I found out. I was there, I'm sure. And we didn't do it. I, I don't know what season the replacement right. was, but it was certainly not, not my first year there. Sure. I think it was, uh, there was a big difference, though, between uh, Buffy and Angel in terms of the challenge of getting emotion into it. Mm -hmm. Because Buffy had a very, very clear allegory, metaphor mm -hmm. of the coming of age, as David said, and, and uh, you know, a teen, teenage angst and, and, and all those things that go along with it, all the universal truths that we all believe about high school and, and beyond going. Angel was a much trickier show mm -hmm. to find the emotion in it. Because you're you're talking about a you know a, a vampire who's he yes, was a he's guilt. He's a detective. <laughs> crappy detective. Exactly. You know, we're doing, we did the crappy detective show, but to, you know. But bringing in and you know it, it kept bringing in characters over from Buffy who would help to sort of you know kind of bring out some of the emotional elements that uh, to carry those emotional elements from Buffy into into Angel mm -hmm. because you know Angel sometimes was sort of a. a just a vessel for action. Well, Angel was the oldest 20-something on the face of the earth. <laughs> you know, we were on the WB, and he's 224 years old. And when we, when we first spun Angel, the idea was we're going to do kind of a noir Los Angeles, you know, yes, a, sort of a detective show, but it was going to be really dark. And I remember Fury wrote the first episode after the pilot mm -hmm. in which Angel licks blood off the floor and lets the girl die. <laughs> and it's... <laughs> Metaphor for alcoholism. <laughs> it was a metaphor for alcoholism. Yeah. You're right. Yes. It was a metaphor. We were thinking of it very much as a metaphor for addiction and alcoholism. Mm -hmm. That was the central theme. Him, at him first. trying to fight his yeah. addictions, and the network lost their minds. <laughs> was, wasn't there like a prostitute cop? Yeah. No. It was a cop who. A prostitute. It was a cop who. Mm -hmm. A prostitute. <laughs> <laughs> 
prostitute. <laughs> who, uh, yes, she was undercover as a prostitute. But of course, she had to do prostitute-like right. things. Being, you know, doesn't want to blow her cover. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Pardon I the expression. Write and uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was uh, it was pretty twisted. It was a pretty twisted show that I think the WB was not uh, not ready. For. They weren't wrong. But, you know, we had twelve on the air. The com- the commitment was twelve on the air, so the pilot was sort of a foregone conclusion. But we shut down for a few weeks and kind of revamped and decided, you know, more what we wanted to see in mm-hmm. that show. So what were those conversations? I'm curious about that, about, you know, how do we, how do we make this a show that stays on the air? Well, the, it had, Angel had to be somebody, he couldn't do things that were so vile that no one, no human would be able to relate to him. And uh, so I guess in a way we softened the show, but there must be a much more... Well, I think that you were, I think there was a, the reason we, you wanted it darker, that you guys had talked about it, we really wanted to make it dis- a distinction between mm-hmm. Angel and Buffy. That's we, right. we don't want to just do uh, right. a male Buffy show. We wanted to do something different, more adult, and uh, and push the envelope a little bit. And, you know, it was an outrageous attempt, but unfortunately, the audience, you know, came to realize the audience who's going to come to it mostly mm-hmm. are going to be people who, who watch Buffy and were invested in Angel. And uh, those were often young girls, you know, mm-hmm. and... and who don't respond well to darkness uh, always. <laughs> well, no. yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> Present company But, I mean, it's an interesting thing, and, and I think some of you guys can speak about this. You know, Buffy, until the writers came on board, was very much a singular vision, right? Yeah. Whereas Angel had been developed by this hive... The character of Angel had been developed by this hive mind for several years before he got his own show. So, you know, there had to be... There had to be some sort of muddying, for lack of another word, of what that show could be and some kind of figuring it out, you know? I've heard him say that he doesn't to this day know why Angel worked. He's never heard about Buffy. He says it worked. <laughs> yeah, Joss. Joss, yeah. Oh. I, I, so I think you're, that, that you may have to put your finger on why. I think Tim, Tim uh, Minear actually had a... Um, he, he, he was latching onto the idea mm-hmm. of trying to be a good man in this world, There's, where there is so much temptation, so much, you know, so much where you're angry, you want to get angry about things, and you want to get back on things. Up with, I wonder why Tim, Tim Manier would come up with that idea. No, I have no idea. No, he's, no, because he's the, the <laughs> most sweet, <laughs> soft-spoken man I know. But, um, but, but he, really, he really believed that a lot of it was just trying to hang on to your humanity and hang on to, and, and being a man. What is it like to be a man? Uh, in this world where there's so many things that... Uh, so many that, constitutes getting in your way. Constitutes <laughs> with their temptations. I'll stop. <laughs> I'll stop. Sorry. Um, Marty's here all week, but... <laughs> uh, let's uh, talk to you guys at the end of the table. You know, I remember uh, watching Angel as a fan, mm-hmm. and the episode really made me sit up in my chair. I, I think it was a fan your episode was... Are you now, or have you ever been? Oh, oh right. yeah, that was a good one. Turn yeah, remind me what that was. It was the uh, the hotel, the uh, flashback to the fifties. Flashback to the fifties was very much the McCarthy era, and you know Angel trying to help, and then just letting letting the demons take these people because they deserved it. Uh, that was the moment that it was like, holy shit! <laughs> that's I mean, it was really just firing on all cylinders, mm. and and uh, there are so many great moments in Angel. Oops. Where, uh, especially that submarine episode. Oh, that was a good one. <laughs> I agree too because, as a fan, it had that feeling of this is the show that's doing what no other show yeah. is doing. I remember when Angel first 
locked uh, Darla and Drusilla in with all the lawyers and just right. let them butcher everyone. I could not believe that. <laughs> I couldn't believe nobody else was doing that. And I feel like it, I still look at it and you go, it's bold 15 years ago now. I still don't see anybody else pushing it to that level. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so when you guys uh, all came on, which was, you know, the end of Buffy and Angel, and then even into Firefly, um, how was the room functioning? What did you guys see? Was it similar to what these guys who were here in the first few years were describing? We, we was pretty much saved it. It was running like a machine. It was the easiest thing. It was my first job, and it was the easiest thing to step into because that really? was, that the process was already set up, and it was it was it was a gift to. And, and as Marty said before, you sort of get spoiled when you go out to the real world after that. And you're like, oh, things are operating like this. But I'm curious to hear when it when it is running like a machine, when it is well oiled like that. What what does it look like? Like, how, are stories being broken in the same way where it is, you know, just figuring things out and everybody watching, or is it something else? Did it evolve? Well, in, <laughs> take a minute. I came in in the fourth season, mm-hmm. and um, uh, I was the only new writer who came in, so everyone mm-hmm. had worked together, and and there was a you know process in place. You know, come in in the morning. Um, there's something different about the geography of the room uh, from every other show I've ever worked on, in that there was no big table in the middle of the room. Mm-hmm. There were a lot of comfortable chairs and couches, and I think maybe a coffee table, mm-hmm. but. Everyone came in, and it was more casual. Hmm. Um, there was uh, a lot more, a lot of discussion, um, just about what we find funny, you know, what we did that weekend, and eventually, you know, we all incorporate that into um, whatever we're really supposed to mm-hmm. be there doing that day. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, and I think you know, it, it really, the geography of the room contributed to. Hmm. Uh, that kind of uh, environment for everyone that, you know, it was just, it was open and uh, and fun. I have a good example of what you're talking about, about something being incorporated. You remember the one day, for some reason, there were beers, and you had a beer, yeah. Yeah. and you said, this beer is giving me a massage. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that many, I think it ended up in beer bag. <laughs> this beer is giving me a massage. <laughs> I, I forgot about that. Yeah. Fun. Yeah. <laughs> beer bag. By the way, uh, for those of you listening, there's nothing wrong with your audio equipment. Tracy is Canadian. <laughs> and Fury, your office became the secondary writer's room, Yeah, if I recall. We spent a lot of hours in there. Where yes, we'd, we'd start, you know, talking with Joss and then get booted out. Yeah, and we'd, uh, we'd, and spend, we'd spend. Yeah, we would spend a lot of time. We'd spend a lot of time breaking a story and getting excited until Josh came in and looked at it. <laughs> well, this is the thing. What, are you, what are you guys doing? Yeah, here? I mean, this is the thing you hear about very often with these sort of uh, the showrunners who who know what they want, right? Uh, which <laughs> unfortunately is rarer and rarer. But um, you know, the room can do a lot of work while that showrunner is off doing showrunner things. Uh, during production. Was there a lot of spinning of wheels, or were you guys actually getting the work done? We were not getting the work done, I would say. (laughs) (laughs) Well, tell me about it. We came in, it was season four, it was a transition, because David Greenwald Mm -hmm. was leaving. Um, I was terrified, because I did not get the show. I still don't know. (laughs) It sounds like nobody gets this show. uh, Truly terrified. Some people here were very nice. Thank um, but Some also, people. Right. Not, right. not everyone. Clearly, yeah. <laughs> she looked at me when she uh, uh, sidelined. 
John Glanzer. Uh, but, and Joss at that point had three shows. He had Buffy, Angel, and Firefly. So it was a lot of waiting for Joss. And the good thing, I mean, so there was a lot of wheel spinning at the same time. What saved us was certain people who had been on Buffy for years. At that point, it was basically Steve and David Fury. Tim was off doing Firefly, so he wasn't really available. Could say Joss will hate that. <laughs> so that I would say saved us is that his vision was so clear for Buffy that they and Angel had been going on that they could tell us what he'll like or not like, mm-hmm. and that kept us moving forward. Yeah, At the same time, he still might come in and blow it up. Right, but it was very helpful. Certain people, Marty and Manier and Goddard, maybe like got Joss's vision right away. I, ne- I felt like I never had a clue what he would like or not like. Well, it was you know it's interesting because. Um, Frequently, he would, if he was really stuck, and, and you too. I mean, he would he would then like sidebar. He'd take one of us, like for a walk or a crab. He'd take us for a crab walk or a, a meal or something. And um, and that you know, I, I I I would say I think that you guys aren't giving yourselves enough credit for the work that is done. You know, I mean, you when you run a show, you know, like you leave and you come back, and a lot of things that you might have. Um, spent a lot of time working out. Right. I've already been worked out, and you'll go. You'll take a piece of it, right. and then you know a lot of the work has been done for you. And it's a lot easier to see what's not working when you haven't been sitting in a room for four hours. <laughs> you know, hoping, I was always hoping that when he one day he would walk in and go. Well, or that, or that by at least developing something he threw out. He learned something about what he didn't want, maybe. Well, you know, and that's how I interpreted it. Yeah. Yeah, that there was always something. At least, you know, even sure. if yeah, even if the entire thing was thrown out, that you were still that much further ahead, uh, just by showing him what he didn't want. <laughs> um, but it seemed to me that there was always something in there that was useful. Always something that could be built on. And, you know, it was funny what would inspire him when you did go for the crab walk or the, you know, a lot of times it would be an off-hand comment or a, you know, or something personal or, you know, I remember just aching to want to help and, you know, Mm -hmm. it would be the sort of throwaway that he'd go, ah, (laughs) you know, you'd see the tumblers click. Um, so, you know, it was a, it was mysterious in some ways because, you know, oftentimes, you know, those genius brains are hard to figure. Um, but, uh, but in other ways, you know, yes, we learned a lot of good rules that we took with us. So I think there was a lot of process going on. It just, you know, it was always, it, it seemed like it was a moving target because he kept getting better. Mm-hmm. God damn. Yeah, and, and, <laughs> and even when we were on, we were on the right track with stories, he'd come in and just make it so much better. Uh, you know, yeah. we'd go, this works. But what if you did this instead? You go, oh yeah, radiance, radiance. Examples of those? Yes, that's about 15 years ago, Ben. So I can remember vividly. This wasn't a surprise. You knew you were coming. <laughs> I, I remember very specifically on Smash when we were sitting there, and it was, it was my first episode, and we were sitting there for a long, long time banging our heads against the wall. We had some version where Buffy and Spike were going to sleep together. Early on, and and Just the house. Yeah, yeah, I remember that one right? too. And and it was a thing where we spent days probably just beating ourselves up. And then Josh yeah. came in and he just took the piece of Buffy and Spike sleeping together and just moved it to mm-hmm. later in the episode. And it went all fell into place. And it was like, oh right, that's the way the story was supposed to be all along. But I remember something different, which is we had them having sex in a house, and he came in and he went. 
this isn't nearly epic enough. Like, this is not, right. they, they should have sex and the house should like fall apart. And we were all like, ah, he's like, no, I mean, literally like, they should tear. They're two super beings going at it. And they're, you know, the tension between them has been building up for all these seasons. Like they should literally tear the house down. And we were all like, <laughs> you know, so that happened all the time. We yep. would be sitting there and just our, our thinking would be, you know, I, I have a lot of mixed feelings about rooms in general now, whether, you know, I think they can be helpful, but to a limited, a more limited degree. I think the it's sort of the land of diminishing returns after a certain point. <laughs> um, and smart people can think of 10 reasons why an idea won't work. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I do think there can be really helpful, but I think you have to, you know, I think his instincts like take a walk, get out of there. You know, I took a cue from that too, and <laughs> try not to keep people at a table all day. Yeah, I just I just want to say that a couple of shows I've worked on since then have had rooms where you do not leave for eight hours. You sit around a table, and it's it's, and you try to tell them this why this is not smart and this is not going to work and. And unfortunately, that's the way some people just know how to do it. And Joss, Joss is no better example of you don't have to do that to, to be creative and come up with stories. You don't have to force yourself to, to put things on boards or you don't have to force yourself to stay in a room until you come up with the right idea. Yeah. You, know, you, you, you meet for a little while, you have fun, you joke around, you talk about the news, you talk about something you saw, you know, you know, all these things. And then some little thing will come out of it. And it's okay, mm-hmm. we got a little something, now everybody... Go take a walk. Josh is also willing to turn stuff in late, push production. <laughs> so it, it, more and more willing. Yeah, that was definitely the terrifying thing coming yes. in late because you know it was my first job. Everyone here had been used to at that point, you know, starting prep with no script, starting prep with no idea. But you know, I, that was that was new for me, and you really. You get thrown into the deep end very fast. I mean, Steve that's jokes about the submarine episode. Why we fight? We were three days away from prep. Yeah, it, it's, no, that's not true. We were three days away from shooting. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we were Tell this whole this story. We were, we were, and sadly, this wasn't that rare. It's not the, yeah, it's not the it first. Was, <laughs> it's not the first. <laughs> we were going to start shooting on a Tuesday, and Friday, we did not have, not just a story, we didn't have an idea. We didn't know what it was. Joss had been, I don't know, yeah, trying to save Firefly, I believe. We pitched like half a dozen things, and nothing was flying. And then he shows up in the room, and we were talking, and just, it was. It, it became. Let's just brainstorm. What if we could do anything? And he says, "What if we just did a, a World War II submarine episode?" <laughs> and, then he, and then he calls uh, Kelly Manners. He says, says "Can hey, we can, do a submarine?" Can you find us a submarine? It wasn't even. <laughs> can you find us? And Kelly says, "Hang on, sir. I'll be." Uh, I'll be <laughs> and he, uh, he calls back and says, "Yeah, I found one in the valley." Okay, in the parking lot of a used car sale. Correct. <laughs> And then Josh goes, okay, we're doing a World War II submarine episode, and and now I have to go. And so he leaves. It's Thursday. It's Friday. Like it. An influence bike on a World War II submarine. I'm not kidding. This is how I'm I gotta go. So Steve and I drive to Barnes and Noble and I buy submarines for dummies. <laughs> 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 submarines for dummies. Submarines for dummies. Because I was like, I guess we have to figure this out. And then we stayed up. It was like all weekend. Yeah. And we figured it out. And we were shooting on a submarine that next week. And it, it's such a like I'm so grateful for it now. At the time, you know, I sent it a therapy. Like the stress of just having to not, not the, the stress of having to come up with an idea is that's the worst because having to execute an idea is different. 
but having to come up with one is miserable. And um, but now you like I'm never intimidated. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm always intimidated. That's not true. But <laughs> I always know it can be done mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. of just how screwed we were over and over and over. That's a really good point because yeah. I I have a I, I mean in the show that I did last season. Um, I had a. I always have to hire a laminated schedule person because I'm not that person because I didn't learn that way. My brain, you know, doesn't even know what time it is. It just knows that it has to make a show and someday it has to shoot. And so someone else has to know when that's going to happen. And um, she would say to me again and again, why are you so calm? And I'd be like, I don't know. <laughs> it's pure denial of facts. And But also, I guess the part of me was like, it will always get done. It will all, you know, we were in, we were in, and we didn't work with people who weren't used to trusting that and so they'd all just run around like I'm terrified because we're two weeks away from having to turn the script and I'd be like Jesus <laughs> and Drew that wasn't your first experience was it conversations with dead people wasn't that the year before yeah on Buffy that was, oh another, which was, that was a nail biter which another one where it was starting shooting I think that was shooting on a Monday or Tuesday and we were into prep I re- this is our poor directors. After I directed for the first time, I had to call every director I've ever worked with and just call because <laughs> they never had scripts. And I, I remember this was specifically on conversations with dead people. We had to, we needed to kill Jonathan, and he was supposed to be killed on something. And this was the level. I was on the board. It was like he kills Jonathan, and the blood does something. And I had a belt buckle that had grooves in it. And so I said, maybe it's like this belt buckle. So that's what the director prepped off of. He didn't have a script. He just, and I remember Josh yelling, hey, because the director says, I need a script. He's like, don't worry, we've got Drew's belt buckle. <laughs> okay. I mean, you and I were both working on this at the same time. We, we, we want to be sure our Hugo award for that. Um, you got the you, she got the gun. Yeah. And really, Joss and Marty. Yeah, <laughs> Joss and, yeah the, the two segments that everybody remembers are Joss and Marty. Yes. Our names are on it. <laughs> <laughs> well, but I was working on the Dawn part, and Joyce comes back, and there's thunking and terror. And you, you were rewriting it as I was writing it, and I could hear thunking coming from your office. And I went in there, and you were slamming the desk. And I was like, "What's going on?" And you were like, "Well, this is Joyce, like thumping on the wall." And I'm just trying to to get in the mood of what's going on. I'm very method when it comes to other scenes. But um, I, I think a couple of things that I learned from Joss that are real key. One is. Don't do it till it's right. Yes. Yeah. And, and he would do that. And the other thing he would say is, don't give people what they want. Give them what they need. Yep. And that means I'll kill a beloved person. You know, I'll, I'll cast away my darlings. And, uh, and that was that, that, that thing that one of you was talking about in, in Angel. Like, oh, anything might happen in this world. And therefore, it feels like the real world, even though it's a quote-unquote mm-hmm. fantasy world. And it also matters more when you take away the character that we love the most, much more than it will a side character that nobody cares about. And that was the thing that I think was a big part of what we did, was making the audience feel something dramatic or funny or emotional or whatever it was. And it's so shocking that it's not, that's not universal. Right. <laughs> Remember when the decision was made to get rid of the Doyle character, that instead of just sort of quietly moving him off to the side. It was, mm-hmm. let's make everybody love this character mm-hmm. so that the death will mean something. We got rid of Doyle in episode nine of the first mm-hmm. year, and there were three regulars in Angel. Yeah. <laughs> so that was... That was I had to do a summer thing. Yeah. <laughs> How early was that decision made? Well, it started to get made around episode two when uh, I told uh, Glenn Quinn, bless his heart and rest his soul, 
Uh, if you don't come to the set knowing your lines, you will not be laughing on my set. Well, I got guys from Simi Valley who work 18 hours a day. You will know what you're going to do. And he just couldn't. You know, he had some problems. He just couldn't. And we decided we're just not going to stand for it, you know. And it wasn't. People were mad. I got letters. Dear Mr. Greenwald, if in fact that is your name. <laughs> it does sound like an alien. So it does like <laughs> Uh, and it was sad, but but we gave him a very noble death. Yeah, you know? I'm sure I remember. Yeah, we did. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm curious about you know this. I, I, I think don't don't make it till it's ready is great advice. But you know we've talked over the past three years on these panels about how television is a moving train, and sometimes you don't get to wait until it's ready. Um, so how, how have you guys contended with That's that? That's why Both. some episodes are crappy. <laughs> <laughs> well, this yeah, is what I'm I mean, curious about it. I mean, I don't think, I, honestly, I think that every episode of Buffy had something great in it. Um, I don't think we, you know, maybe one of mine was crappy. Oh, but anyway, <laughs> um, uh but I think that that's like, that's why being a TV writer is so exciting because there's something that happens. Usually sometimes it's the 12th hour, but, um, there's something that happens. And it also teaches you, like, I feel like having worked in features, you know, those of us who have, you know, they think that you have to go like slaughter a goat and like wait for the moment. And like, it's some weird alchemy and you can just say to them, like, it's not happening. And they'll believe you (laughs) when, you know, having worked on television, you can, you just keep writing, you keep writing and you keep writing. And Joss, in his wisdom, would, would you know he would push production. Like if it wasn't, if if it wasn't mostly there and mostly working, you know we'd go to the mat. Um, you know, you know. Hopefully, you don't have to do that. But um, but yeah, he had a real. And and it's interesting because I do think we kind of carry that. Like, I, you know, I haven't run a show in a long time, but this is the last time I have, and um, recently, and there was just one episode, and I was like, something stinks. It's just mm. not, you know. And we kept. We were moving forward in a certain direction, and I just, and I, you know, I, I thought, what would, you know, it's the, we used to talk about Billy Wilder and Ernest Lubitsch, you know, because um, we're all, we got a list from Joss when I did anyway, second <laughs> season of movies to watch, and there was a lot of stuff that I hadn't seen, like, you know, a bunch of Billy Wilder, and, but then great ones like uh, Real Genius, and uh, what was it, Ice Castles? You flew in love Ice Castles. <laughs> You know, like all these weird movies and also things like Sweet Smell of Success, which I should have known by heart. And um, But, you know, big fan of Wilder and Lubitsch. And um, uh, Wilder had a, a thing on his, um, you know, bulletin board that just said, what would Lubitsch do? <laughs> and I kind of feel like I carry around with me, like, what would Whedon do? Like, And I knew in my heart that we were going down the wrong path. It was just not good enough. And, you know, and for, uh, you know, terrified everybody, but I came in and threw it all out, you know, and we were days away from prep. And, but that's, but that felt so much better than proceeding with mediocrity. Mm-hmm. You know? It's definitely trickier today because uh, there's so fewer episodes of series. Mm-hmm. Most series are, you know, 10, 12 episodes on networks now. I mean, they're keeping except for things like Grimm, which does like 100 episodes a month. <laughs> a month. Um, but usually the series that I've been working on have been very limited. So you can't, you can't really have those weak episodes. Like when, you know, with Joss, if we did have, as Marty said, and of course, like all the Buffy's had merit, 
but or, or angels for that matter. But there would be some episodes that we weren't that fond of because we, we didn't quite nail it. We didn't get there. We didn't make it as good as it could have been. But we go well. You know, we're doing twenty two of these. It's like you know, okay, that was an off week. We're <laughs> doing twelve. You can't have a, it's very, you can't have an off week. You have to you have to kind of find a way, and you have to do like something that Marty has the courage to do, thanks to you know Joss's. You know, teachings, which is like you've got to wait until it's ready. You've got to you've got to stop it if it's not where it needs to be. You need to. Get I'm it curious, and this is a bit of a sidebar, but uh, Steve, having just done this series for Netflix, uh, and Drew too, having written the, the first episode and second one as well, um, you know, were you guys given a little more freedom in production? Were you allowed to kind of get your ducks in a row a little more? <laughs> no. Well, there's no freedom. <laughs> um, you know. Time really is money, and there is a schedule. And uh, especially working for a company like Marvel, you don't want to go over budget. Sure. Um, you know, a little less forgiving than a, a studio, which studios are tough. But at the end of the day, if you get to the final episode and you happen to be six hundred fifty thousand dollars over, there'll be a lot of yelling, and they'll say, "Okay, just don't do it again." Um, <laughs> My experience in cable so far has been it's a little less forgiving mm-hmm. that, you know, you, you have to mm-hmm. hit your targets. Um, but the, the flip side of doing uh, 10 to 13 episodes is it takes almost as long as it does for 22. Mm-hmm. You have that amount of time. Mm-hmm. So what you do have, you make a lot less money. I mean, that's yeah. the first and foremost. <laughs> yeah. you, you take a pay cut, but the trade-off is you have more time to craft those episodes. Mm-hmm. I mean, one advantage, I should say real quick about yeah. Joss, is that because he had all the writers doing production, which is actually quite yeah, rare crazy. and increasingly rare for some reason, I think people understand production, so when you're up against it, you know, <laughs> you're, it gives you more leeway, because mm-hmm. you know, like, Where hey, this is going to cost too much, we're going to have to keep this interior, and so it does... I think that helps. Yeah. You really trained children. Yeah, which he is does. And, that, and, and yeah, and it's so important. Yeah. I mean, that, I think that's the most, aside from the emotion, clarity, above all else, that was the only thing I told you. If you wanted to be trained, I, if I, I had no interest <laughs> in your directing, so I felt like I was free to do the stuff I like to do, which was really great. Yeah. In uh, When I joined, I, I was really, really early in my career, and... Uh, I'd be down on set when my episode was shooting, and Joss would be, you know, blocking it, and he would say, you know, come up here, come up here, and stand right there with him, so mm-hmm. I could see how he was doing, to see what he was seeing. It was very helpful. And a lot of you guys got the first opportunity to direct on his shows as well. Did it feel like a natural extension for you of what you had been doing in the room? Well, it was because he did it. You know, and he had actually directed that first presentation, but they had a casting change and some other things. Um, But because he did it, uh, the rest of us, I mean, I had done a lot of directing, but you kind of wanted to carry your show, you know, through. But let's be honest, Joss did shoot Angel in a Mirror one time when he was directing, and we all just stood there until he figured out, oh, that's right. Very um, I want to thank you so Everyone much. Bye. 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 Bye.
it's interesting, like watching what he did, watching watching what our directors did, watching that part of the process happen. And I remember talking to him about it and saying, this is not something I've ever been interested in before. And he's, he said, to, the first thing he said was, you just have to remember, you, you have to want to do it, not because you don't like what's being done by the people who are doing it, but because you have some vision of telling the story visually that, mm-hmm. that you want to express. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that's, when you, when you work, when you do 22 episodes a year and you see all the things that could have been better, it would be so tempting to fall into the negative space and say, oh, well, I want to do this better because nobody else is doing it right, as opposed to, I have something that I want to contribute. <laughs> and I, that, I thought it was important. Yeah, and that, that's so representative of him because of the way he approached theme, that it's very rare to find someone who won't settle for a theme of an episode and tell it's something he actually believes. Yeah. And that, I don't know that I've seen that anywhere else, because usually when you're looking for a theme for an episode, you sort of go for yeah, a universal truth. You know, <laughs> it's, um, and it's totally fungible. You yeah. can keep changing it. You're yeah. like, oh, no, maybe it's about, like, be careful what you wish for. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's very hard and very rare to actually, to actually, like, do, do something. Well, is that true? What we're saying, is that true? Is that what we really <laughs> believe about the world? That's the one thing I will say I've, I've moved away from. Like, I, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm not anti-theme, but I, um, uh, I, I, I think that in general, I mean, it's nice to know what the thread that is holding these stories together, why they relate well to each other, or why. But um, I've become a non-theme person. I don't, I don't buy it. Oh, I, I'm anti-theme. I'm, I, I, yeah, I don't buy it. I think it's, I think it's a. Um, I bought it because of Joss, but I feel like in too many rooms, it's just a, it's just some bullshit you pitch to the network. Right. Um, so they'll That's go, oh, there's a theme, we're safe. That's exactly <laughs> what it is. With Joss, it had meaning. Yeah. Uh, three years on, on Smallville, nothing against Smallville, mm-hmm. but the theme was something we would often talk about right before we pitched it to the network. It was like, all right, what, what's the theme? <laughs> right. And we'd come up with something, and all the network wanted to hear is that, oh, they know the theme. You know, it didn't matter. For them, it's just an, it's a it's a it's a it's an organizing principle. Yeah, when right. life, to my mind, isn't doesn't work by theme. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's a there's a there's a. It, but I do think it's useful, if, especially if it emerges organically. Then you can say, oh well. Well, that's that's, that's, about, really, you know? that's really the key, and it's, the key is not forcing a theme into something where it doesn't belong. But I think theme to me, there's there's there you get a cohesive quality to your story, almost like it's a piece of music, almost like, you know, or poetry or, or something where there's, you know, where you, you, you recall something from earlier and, and um, you know, obviously we always try to do emotional themes and, and like, you know, that's the, what's the Buffy of it, but I think it was because Joss knew how to use that arsenal of, of themes and, you know, our, our bad guys, our big bads were themons you know, as we were called, you know, it's like, this is a loneliness demon, you know, that's yeah. his theme, and we'll do that. But you know what, it actually, I actually think it, it, it worked great there. I'm not particularly anti-theme. I don't think I've written theme in anything since I've done Buffy. But I, I just think that uh, there is something, there is sort of a, a poetry that gets lost when it just becomes sort of mm-hmm. random events that happen that are strung together. There's sort of a, there's something where you, you kind of want to go at the end, of an episode sometimes, depending on if it's serialized or not, but you want to go, ah, huh, wow, that really, I understand where that, 
what started from and where it was going to and why it went to that place. I think I sort of fell back in love with the watch show doing Husband, you a show where it's like really agenda driven and you're going like, oh, and then, you know, it's a show with sort of episodes that haven't been told before. Then I found myself going like, oh, well, there's a very specific point we want to make about this same-sex marriage that, that nobody is making. And so then the theme started feeling relevant again. So I think it just has to do with how, how agenda-y your show. I think we're also, it's something we're seeing as shows get more serialized, that it's not an episode right. has a theme, but rather a season has a right. theme. Yeah. Or it's, hard, it's harder because there are no episodes, there are yeah. very rare episodes that are self-contained anymore, yeah. and it's very hard to, to, to get that, yeah. I think it also helped on, on Joss's shows that, that and, and again, this is another thing where I'm always surprised that not everybody does this, but he knew more or less what the end of the season was going to be yes. before we started the first episode of the season. Things may adjust and shift, right. and the way you get there may be a little bit different. <laughs> the Institute, or whatever it was. <laughs> 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 the Initiative. <laughs> the Institute. See, I've blocked that whole thing. But you, you know where you're heading, and, so in that, and, and most of your characters have a track that you know what you want to say about them for the, for the season, and I feel like that helps when you're talking about theme, I think then it does become organic because you're on a, you're on a journey already and it comes out. It's not something that's being forced upon the characters episode to episode. I think a lot more shows would benefit from that, too. I agree. There's a lot of shows on the air that I'm always a little frustrated with because they don't they don't look at it like that. And I, I think they should. Let's go. I've been in so many rooms since uh, Joss, and the thing that always amazed me is how do you not know where you're headed? Right. You know? It's just uh, some welcome to twenty four. Figure it out. Well, this I was curious about that because as welcome the, to lost. as both you know, <laughs> yeah, Buffy and you must have yeah. all time. <laughs> I'll tell you all the answers. <laughs> the most trouble we get into on these panels is re- lost related. Don't bother. <laughs> Don't bother. <laughs> Don't bother. Uh, but I am curious about these shows. Uh, you know, as we move. In time, Buffy got a little more serialized, Angel got a little more serialized, and then you get to Firefly, which was more serialized than Dollhouse, which was very serialized, especially by its end. Um, and Liz has spoken about, Liz and Sarah both have spoken about that a little bit on, on the previous panel, but, you know, we're, we're the big picture of the shows broken in the same way that, you know, they were episodically, like on these Buffy episodes. Was it a lot of pitching ideas, waiting for one to take, Seeing how they lined up, I mean, it's a, a kind of a general way of pitching, but, you know, how, how were the big picture uh, stories pitched? We had onions, do you remember? Onions? <laughs> it, was, it was like Cockney Rhyming Slang or something. It was, Onion was short for State of the Union. And it became known as Onions, and it was where, where we would discuss mm-hmm. the big upcoming themes. How often? Was it every half season? Quarter, it, feels like, it felt like uh, we would always... It would be at least every half season. Maybe sometimes we would have a little refresher. Mm-hmm. But uh, onions, I forgot about onions. Yeah, state of the onions. onions. <laughs> you shorted just to onions. I didn't even. We'll have an onion. I remember. For you guys, I just want to go back on something that was mentioned before. For you guys, who Jane mentioned, got the the Joss perspective. You were the ones that, you know, could say, yeah, Joss wouldn't like that. Uh, David and Steve and Drew and Marty. What did that... Tar- Can we get specific on that target? You know, how did you start to solve that puzzle? You'd had to have heart. 
It had to make sense. It had to be inevitable and a surprise, and it had to be simple. Just that. I could say something, not that I can claim to have, you know, mm-hmm. gotten Joss's voice, but um, but something that Marty actually told me when I arrived, uh, I guess you got the list of movies when you arrived, <laughs> but something Marty said to me was to uh, take a look at what influences Joss, not just the words on the page, on the script, the way the characters speak, but what is he reading and, mm. and watching, and what influences him, I guess, that helped you. Helped you. Well, I mean, that, that was one fun thing about working on the show, too, and being in the room, was we were constantly, there was, like, the, there was always, always the show obsessions, you know, there was always the, what did you see over the weekend, what did you think, what Wesley. did you, uh, Harry Potter, yeah, God, Harry Potter. it was as though the, the, the whole office turned into Hogwarts over the weekend, you, know, you just came I, in I one day. To, I have to say, I was the first one to read Harry Okay, okay. well, then I blame you. And I, I remember as well that uh, we came in one day, and it was before we went into production, and Joss uh, wanted to take us all to a movie. We all went out and saw South Park together. <laughs> he had seen it over the weekend, and he really wanted everyone to be able to discuss it and talk about it. So he wanted us all on the same page, so he took us out to see it. Hilarious. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> And then we sang the song in the room for like a week. <laughs> <laughs> Which one? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Phillip. Yeah. 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 I want to uh, get a little nuts and boltsy on this stuff and um, just talk about once a story, uh, stories are broken in the room. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. Does that have to be on stage or something like like he was directing? Sure. Or or in a scout van. Okay. When Joss was directing, when he was directing, hush. I remember Jane and I went with Joss in a van from Santa Monica to Universal Studios, where he was directing that day, and and we talked the whole way. He was like in the bench seat in front of us, and and, you know, (laughs) talking, talking, talking the the entire way to Universal. Then he was directing Hush there, and we sat just outside this big old house with a little board, and we tried to break story while Joss was inside (laughs) directing, and any chance he had, he would duck out onto the porch porch of this house, and then go back in and keep directing. That's right. Uh, And Drew, you're nodding. You've had similar experiences. Yeah, it seemed like by the time, because... By the time I got there, it was season seven of Buffy, so he had Buffy, Firefly, yeah. and Angel all on. So he was, I rarely remember him in the room. It was whoever was in the room would go to him, mm-hmm. wherever that was. Yeah. And often that was like midnight outside an editing room or on stage. Like that was, that's what I thought TV was. <laughs> it was weird to get into places and go home at five. Also, in an unreasonably fancy restaurant in yes. really yes. crappy clothes. Because yes. one thing you can say about Joss is he likes to eat well. Um, and, you know, we'd eat regular food in the daytime, but then he'd be like, let's go to Melise, which is like a five star, like, you know, and you'd be in your sweatpants and people would be getting engaged next to you. Literally, this happened to us once, you know. I was just like dragging, you know, late at night trying to break a story with him. And next, you know, it was, but everybody loved to see him because he was going to, you know, he was going to eat well. <laughs> I think in the earlier seasons, or at least early when I was there, I think largely the 
for the most part, stories were broken in his. Uh, he had an anteroom outside his office, mm-hmm. uh, a kind of, a, which, as Tracy was describing, was just comfy chairs and sofas and beanbag chairs on the floor, <laughs> and, and just. I forgot know. to mention the piano. There's a piano. And the piano. Oh, yes, yes. Yeah. Oh, of course, you have a keyboard. Yeah, the keyboard. And uh, and a lot of it was just us uh, breaking it that way. I mean, it certainly got to a point where he was more comfortable. He could be in any anywhere, mm-hmm. as, like on the road or something. You're breaking it with as he's direct between scenes. He's he's breaking a story with you. But um, you know, but the early time, and I remember like coming in with when it was David and Joss. You know, like talking to them and breaking the stories, the freelance episodes that that I did the first few times mm-hmm. were freelance episodes, and a lot of that was just in uh, right there. I mean, it's just. And just usually the three of us, or sometimes Marty would come in. Marty helped helped with that uh, mm-hmm. angel second episode that oh, was thrown boy. out of the network. Marty was like, you know, <laughs> Marty came in to help us to help save an episode that was <laughs> right, um, already in production. Which I was uh, on my way to get married that weekend. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for that, by the way. Joss, uh, Joss, uh, maybe a little hostily. Um, uh, said, I only need you to write, like, can you do 15 pages, um, you know, before Friday? Um, and it was Wednesday. And um, I said, uh... It was like the front page, and he was Walter Burns. Yeah, like, I just wanted to make sure that, I, you know, if I was getting married, that I wasn't going to lose my edge. So I banged out. <laughs> it was, uh, it was, uh, it was quite, quite the experience. But it actually turned out, it was one of those things where we, it was super rushed, and I feel like it turned out pretty good. <laughs> and, and I got to come to your wedding, too. So. <laughs> famous anecdote about Joss writing on his wedding. Wasn't he faxing pages for Twister on his wedding? Some story about writing. I remember there was one, the only time that I remember Joss getting a little bit a little bit cross with me was was I was supposed to talk to him. It goes back to the, what we were saying before about sidebars, but I was supposed to talk to him over Thanksgiving weekend about the episode that became the killer in me on Buffy when... We, we had no clue. It was one of those things where we had no idea what it was going to be, and my job was to come up with something and call him and, and talk, talk him so the two of us could talk it through. And I was a little bit late. I had gone to see a friend for lunch, and she had, she had taken too much of my time, and I was a little bit late. And so he was already a little bit frustrated that I hadn't made him wait. And I, like, out of desperation, I did this Hail Mary of, of the pitch of, of Spike dying because of the, the chip in his head was becoming dangerous and there was just silence during the chip. And and I thought, oh God, I'm dead. And, and, and instead he said, I don't hate it. Oh <laughs> I don't hate it. Yeah, that, I don't hate it. Oh, yeah. It doesn't suck. It's good. I use it to this day. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but in, in, I think your question about nuts and bolts is like mm-hmm. a little bit like once we're, once we're mapping out a story, like how did we... My memory, and everybody can correct me because I'm probably wrong, but was we wrote toward act breaks. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we were five acts. Four. Four. But four acts and a teaser, right? Yeah. Yeah. A teaser. So, which I, I technically go five acts. Four acts. But we had a teaser and then four acts. And we so every act break and writing toward that act break. So finding, figuring out what that act break would be thematically, what would be the appropriate place mm-hmm. for... Buffy to be on the ropes for Buffy to you know you know to, to turn it back on and, and you know defeat the the lonely demon mm-hmm. um, you know those are the things that I think we sort of laid out to a large extent first we we kind of had a we, we would get a teaser that would set up our premise and the first act would be Buffy's life and and how it worked in thematically with what we're getting toward and then there'd be some big fight or a horrible monster thing at the end of Act One and. 
And then the rest was like, okay, how are we going to end Act 2? How are we going to end Act 3? I mean, that's, that's, that's the simplest thing I remember to starting out, like, how to break a story. Mm-hmm. However, <laughs> yes. do not fall in love with an act break. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Because you will do, you can very possibly make a whole lot of wrong moves and a lot of stuff in, uh, you know, 10 pounds of shit into a five-pound bag <laughs> to get to this moment that by the time you get there is not earned. Mm-hmm. So everything had to be earned on that show. Right. The four acts was glorious, by the way, because oh, you could yeah. have an act that was more than seven pages long, so you could yeah. you could really get into things. You could have now with six acts, your 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 scenes are shorter, your your stories get shallower because you have to twist them more times. Mm-hmm. And so, so much part hard. of really? yeah, part of what mm-hmm. was made Buffy so great that's not often acknowledged was simply that it was a different act structure that's mm-hmm. not used anymore. Oh, and also you could write a scene that wasn't two pages. Like yeah. now, yeah. now yes. if you write a three and a half page scene, oh, everybody gets nervous. Right. They just say, "Ooh, this scene's so long." You're like, "It's three and a half pages, <laughs> and we get like 97 plot points in it." You know, hopefully without you know showing how the sausage is made and the still Everybody gets yeah. like. Yeah. I was going to say the one thing I do remember is that the the breaks were really detailed. Like yeah, yes. there'd be joke pitches, there'd be dialogue pitches. You yeah. know, we, you know, if if something was said in the room, like you know, this beer is giving me a massage, um, it, that would be on the board. You know, there'd be there'd be lots and lots of details, and um, I think people got elected based on how well they wrote very small um, <laughs> to be board board people. You could you could also fail at the board test, which I did on purpose. Yeah. <laughs> and we we all had. Um, we didn't have our laptops in the room. We just had little notebooks. Mm-hmm. And there were a lot of jokes pitched out in the room and a lot of little bits of dialogue. Mm-hmm. And you would constantly, I would anyway, write those mm-hmm. down and, word and word. use them. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. I don't think yeah. we have laptops then. But yeah, Joss, I mean, so often, 90% of the time that someone compliments a joke from an episode, it's something Joss said during the break. I specifically remember in the... Um, the Firefly that I wrote, the whole extended bit of, of Mal has his sword at the guy's belly and he's like, the mark of a good man is mercy. And he stabs it and he says, well, you know, I guess I'm not a great man, I'm a good man. Like, I'm all right. So all of that was just stuff Josh said when I was writing as fast as I could. <laughs> Uh-huh. We did think, we did yeah. feel in those days, and it was very true in those days, that if you got the break right, then the outline would be good, and then no matter what shape the script came in, you could fix it in a very uh, quick amount of time. That but that's not true today in, in the show Grimm. It works, really? it, it yeah, works exactly the opposite. Works exactly the opposite. And we, we go from word to word and then from page to page, and if it's not working, we throw out the outline and start again. Um, so, would you guys? These would be like 15, 20 page outlines, I would imagine. These are long. I'm saying the longer I yeah. tended to overwrite my outlines, which are like 12 to 14 pages. Oh, okay. I think mine were like 9 to 12. Yeah, All right. I'm sure. And would these go to network and you would get notes from that? Yeah, but very few notes. Mm-hmm. Those were golden years. And I worked, yeah. on a show <laughs> were golden. I worked on a show before Buffy, I had no notes. Buffy and Angel, we had no notes, really. Mm-hmm. You might talk to somebody and they might say one thing. Mm-hmm. And then, as Marty was saying, we went out in the world. I went to ABC after oh, Angel. God, so did I. And I used to get these notes and I would just go, oh, dumb note, next. Not going to do that, next. And they hated my guts. <laughs> yeah, no, I went to ABC during yeah. that era, the, the <clears throat> era, and um, I don't know if it's better or worse now, but it, it was a it was a drubbing. I mean, it was like I, I really felt like the job was 
to ultimately be a very well-paid you know, person who took dictation. They, mm-hmm. they wanted to write the show, and I kept going, well, then, why am I here? You know? yeah, and sure. it, was, it was really, um, I really wiped out. I mean, I, I wiped out under that system, and That's fortunately, tough. in a way, it was a, a good thing in the long run, but in the short run, it, you mm-hmm. know, I think both of us, just the stress of um, you know, having really been taught to tell a story from your gut and trust that, mm-hmm. and then to be told that your gut was you know, insane all day, every day, <laughs> Um, you know, and then to see the show go to crap, you know, was, you know, humiliating. It was just awful. Um, yeah. Fox and ABC post Buffy were both, and I'm, you know, I'm not naming any individual. It was just the bureaucracy mm-hmm. there was about control, you know, and unless you were someone who just innately, you know, like I've worked for Shonda Rhimes, she stood up to ABC on the pilot mm-hmm. and just, they, they tried to bury that show. Um, Grey's Anatomy was in a terrible time slot, and McPherson wanted it to die, and for her to go away, and she had the last laugh. <laughs> but um, you know, th- that's the relationship you'd be in if you right. if you stood your ground, which was you'd be hated, and your show would get a you know death slot because yeah. um, you didn't behave. Let me. This is also a bit of a sidebar, but Goddard, you're working in features a lot these days, which I feel like is years and years of notes. No, but it's funny because I, I think I've carried some of that indignance along with me. <laughs> because it, I approach it the same way where I work really hard on the break. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that happens in the feature world mm-hmm. a lot. Really? They say all the time, they say to me... That's how my movies are terrible. Makes my, yeah, I think so. Yeah. My explode. They say, could you just do a quick outline? And I say, no, that's what you're paying me for. The outline is what you're paying me for. The writing's easy. Like, anyone can go write, you know, dialogue. Like, it's not hard. The, the hard part is the story. That's the part that... And, and all too often, people just want to treat story as though you can blow through it. Because mm-hmm. they get enamored by an idea. And that's the other thing I say, because I get sent scripts all the time, and they say, well, we really like this idea, but we don't, uh, we don't like the script, but we really like this idea. And I say, ideas are easy. You're paying for execution. Like, it's execution. That's what you're here to do. And I feel like, because I learned that from Joss, I always said, if there was a pie chart for a script, you'd spend 90% of that pie chart breaking the story, mm-hmm. and then you'd get 10% to write it. Like, that's really it. And... And I see the opposite happen all the time, and it causes so many problems. Mm-hmm. Because what you learn is you're going to pay the time anyway later. <laughs> like, you're going to, if the story's wrong, you're going to then, it's going to affect production, it's going to affect editing, it's going to affect all the, no one's going to know what decisions to make. But if you know what the story is, everything gets way easier. Mm-hmm. But no one ever wants to do it because it's hard. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Green, I didn't mean to cut you off there. Did you have something to add? I have no idea what I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so we post this outline. Were you then sent to script? Did you get notes from Joss on this outline? Okay. Mm-hmm. And what what was? I mean, these had been broken pretty much in the room. So what was the tenor? Of well, we get notes from uh, early on. It was notes from David and Joss, mm-hmm. and then later it was more <clears throat> Marty and Joss mm-hmm. uh, as Marty took over. But um, and he would it would it would be a small circle of people who would give you those notes. Okay. Um, Although if you had notes on a script, you could pass them along to Marty or Joss for someone mm-hmm. else or, or something that, that they may, if they think it's, there's some value in it, they may pass it along. So Joss would put a check in your script if he oh. likes something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> a good joke. And he'd, he'd doodle other lines in your, in your script, and they were always better. 
Uh, and then, you, then you'd be off on the script, um, which, Jane, this is the fun part for you. Yes. Dialogue. <laughs> um, dialogue and puns. Um, and I was very fortunate that Josh shares my appreciation. Uh, I really made him laugh one time when I, I had to write some scene quickly. And it was some joke about Buffy saying, like, I might as well have been out there with a, with a, with a steak made of Nerf or something. I mean, I did some soft thing, and, I, and Joss was, like, staring at it, staring at it. And I, so I, I thought his problem was that he didn't think the joke was funny, so I just started pitching, like, marzipan? <laughs> <laughs> like, and he started laughing. He was, like, he's, he was not concerned about it. <laughs> that's great. Marzipan. That, that's where I started having fun. <laughs> The greatest honor for me was Jane being jealous of a pun that we're in a What was that? It was the one where they said, we th- you're, you're the slayer, huh? We thought you were a myth. And he says, well, you were a myth taken. <laughs> oh! oh. <laughs> and Jane's great. She does kill her to this day. Yes. Yeah, she's like, damn it, why did I get that one? It was just sitting there. It's like, oh, I'm Jane jealous of my pun. When, when you did uh, have a script before going into production, um, how many versions did you get to do? How often did you get notes and get to rewrite those? Or did you rewrite them? Did Josh rewrite them or no, did we David rewrite them? Third draft. Yeah. Yeah. So it was the first okay. show I'd been, I came out of sitcoms. Um, and so it was the first time I'd ever been on a show where I actually typed the words third draft, <laughs> uh, which was really fun. And I think sometimes we went past that. Um, yeah, what I remember was the great thing about working yeah. with Josh is that. He wouldn't rewrite an entire script. There'd be a scene here, a scene there that right. he'd say, uh, you know, you got a couple of cracks at it. Let me take a mm-hmm. whack at it and come back and you feel terrible about yourself. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In my memory, it was like two drafts and then a cleanup version. Right. Like you would rewrite the third thing would be the sort of the... And that would more or less be your production. Yeah, the so last, was, his last note pass would be tiny things, like put a comma here and stuff. Like, wow. like he was really giving you the ability to take the script all the way home. Uh, he wasn't just getting it to play before he could take it over. Okay. That was really nice. Joss's process, however, was to never rewrite. He hated rewriting more than anything in the world. Of his own. Yeah, yeah. yeah of his own. To never rewrite his own stuff. And he would pace and pace and pace and pace until, I think it was like playing chess, until he'd figured out the best move for every move in the story. And then he'd sit down and write it, in no particular order, by the way. Oh, really? Yeah. He just would write Whatever scene various scenes that came up to him, and then he'd stitch them together. Huh. Well, he often had to write them in the shooting order, because he'd be sending shooting <laughs> Often. <laughs> well, and, and you guys were producing your own episodes, for the most yeah. part, yes? Uh, was there rewriting on set? Hardly ever. It was not a show that was, it was particularly collaborative with the, with the actors or anything. Mm-hmm. But they would ask if they could change something, but they weren't encouraged, I don't think, to like, come in with, here's a big block of dialogue. Mm-hmm. And Josh just said to the director, he said, like, just shoot the script. I mean, sometimes directors, especially new directors, would, would want to talk about, like, changing line, or the actor wants to change a line. And more often than not, I think Josh would say, just, just shoot. We decided this was the best line, so shoot that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very protective. Were there, in, in any of the shows, and we'll, we'll start to wind down here, but so I'm going to ask some of the nerdy questions. Uh, were there... Characters that were more challenging to write than others. Oh, right. How did you find your way around? <laughs> Pick up that microphone. <laughs> sure it's been twenty years. You can say it. <laughs> Riley. Riley was a Riley was a bitch. How do you follow Angel? Yeah, the, the, the less distinctive and extreme a character is, the harder they are to write. Yeah, and you know, we, we thought 
it would be fun for him to be, you know, an all-American guy who she'd be bored with. But guess what? <laughs> That's boring. <laughs> uh, I remember, you know, for me, like, I only got interested in him when he became a, a you know, when he got, he, like, getting sucked off by, 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 by constitutes. <laughs> no, remember he got it. He yeah. started going and With getting, getting and vampire. And oh, he yeah, started yeah. going right. to vampire uh, mistresses and right. getting, yeah. you know, constitutes. Yeah, right. constitutes. But um, then I was like, okay, now I'm interested. And then we let him. Then he left the show. <laughs> but Mark Lucas, great guy, great, guy. great in other shows, and yeah, it was yeah. had nothing to do with him. It was he started with the with the rebound guy. Yeah, yeah. The, so the how does guy. that how does that character make it through to shooting? You know, like how do you not start to realize? Well, you still needed a rebound. I mean, yeah. he was serving a very important functional part of the That's machine right. of the show. And nobody was gonna. I mean, that was the other trick, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, who was gonna? Everybody's going to be dissatisfying, but I think it... You Ultimately, know. Spike rose to the right level, but you couldn't write right. right Angel to Spike. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no way. You, yeah. Needed, you needed the nice guy for her to realize, like, that's not her bag. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking I, from experience. Yeah. <laughs> I remember what Josh said. Um, three words, and I've used them in other words. Sorry, in other rooms mm-hmm. since. Um, when he sort of was having this realization that Riley isn't working, uh, he just said, pininess is adorable. Um, in that Buffy isn't pining for anyone. Mm. Everybody gets when people want something that they can't have, and she isn't pining for someone if she's got the good guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, were there characters that were particularly fun to write? Spike, Giles, Although I think the nerds, the, uh, the, when, the when the when the evil nerds appeared, yeah. that was that was a particular. I mean, they were all fun to write for. That's yeah. the thing is, they all had such distinctive voices. Everybody I had such. Yeah. yeah, I loved writing for Harmony. Is what I remember. You really did. I really, yeah. I had a really good time with Harmony. What? what was it about? I don't know. I really don't know. I just there was something there was something about her. Uh, there was something about her that I just found very funny. Just when she became, uh, when she became, we wanted to be a villain. When you know, when she wanted to, you know, not just because before she was just this inconsequential. I barely remembered her being like one of Cordelia's crowd or something, and she would say. But then once she like aspires to villainy, I just found her very funny. <laughs> I, um, I loved writing charisma. And one day I, I called her on the phone and I said, I'm sitting, up in, I'm sitting in my big mansion uh, talking to you. And she goes, my God, you are Cordelia. <laughs> oh, my God. Um, and there was an actor who shall remain nameless who thought that the H on the call sheets, which means hold, meant holiday. <laughs> Just didn't show up. <laughs> Went to Vegas. <laughs> Um, I'm curious to hear a little bit about uh, if there are episodes of any of these series um, that you guys have written, which, and, and we've talked about some of this in the past, but which are personal to you or where you feel like this is a story uh, about me or clearly from me, you know, that it's all there on the screen and it came together. I have a very distinct memory on, on The Killer and Me, uh, writing a first draft of the scene where Kennedy and Willow talk about mm-hmm. what it means to be out, and Marty and Joss sat down with me after the first draft and said, we want to see more of you. And you know, mm-hmm. what's your been like, and you gave me the freedom to go ahead. And and that scene became something that was really important to me. I remember watching with the guy I was dating at the time, and he said, he watched that scene, and he said, 
but you don't get to see that on TV very often. Mm-hmm. And that was because you always gave me the permission to go and put myself into it. Can I ask you, I want to dig a little deep on that, because um, you told that story, uh, or the first half of that story, uh, on the panel before, and it's a great story. Um, how, and this is a little personal, but how did you, after being told by Marty and Joss to go and dig deeper on it, how did you? I think what, I think if I remember correctly, what it came down to for me was that was that so much of what had been seen at that point about being gay on TV was about how hard it is and the struggle, and you're always a victim, and you, people are going to beat you up, and you're going to get sick. And <laughs> that only that 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 is, that that is a big part of the experience. It was a big part of the experience, but we were entering a time where where. It was broadening a little bit, and, and we were becoming better as a society. And as a result, I think people were having a different experience where coming out is really fun at the end of the day because you can finally be yourself and, and, and throw down the shackles. And I hadn't seen that a lot, and that had been my experience. I was really fortunate that I had come of age at a time where I, I could feel free. And, and you never got to see that celebrated, ever. And, and, and Kennedy seemed like the kind of person who... Wait, was you're gay? <laughs> <laughs> All those makeout sessions, and you still don't know. I just thought you were a fan. <laughs> I feel like we should end it right here. I just told you as a fan. I just I want to ask you guys a couple more things, uh, and and it is sort of along those lines about. Getting honest and digging deep emotionally on a project that's not yours. Uh, I'm always curious about how we as staff writers, as people working for other people, uh, can do that. That's it, took a, a go ahead. Just, it took me a second just now for you to think, think about what you meant by not yours. Because <laughs> it's, 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 I think it was ours. I know. That's correct. Marty wrote scenes that would make me cry, and I think they made Marty cry when she was writing. <laughs> um, the most embarrassing thing would be sitting on set with Joss while we watched a scene that one of us wrote, and both of us would be weeping. <laughs> We'd just be like, we're so sad for the things we wrote are so beautiful. <laughs> and, but it was, it was, uh, no, I mean, I think the thing about, um, again, this is a lesson learned, and I've said this before, but Joss was generous in that um, he, and I think the generosity comes from a, a security that he, he was good at what he did. And I think that the biggest um, enemy of showrunners is ego, mm-hmm. um, which prevents them from letting writers do their jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, because if they see something on the page that is really good, it scares them. Um, and then they think, well, I better make this better mm-hmm. um, and piss all over it um, because it's not written by me. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and that I think that sends good writers into you know into you know really doubting themselves. And he sure. did the opposite when we nailed it. You know, he was like, I'm not doing nothing. You know, I, I'm not I'm yeah. not I'm not going to touch this. It's working, and this is why. And um, and yeah, we all kind of I think gravitated toward themes and episodes that. You know, we, you know, he called me the pains and chains girl, you know, um, and, 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 you know, um, Jane did romps and, you know, we, we had sort of like little categories where, you know, we obviously we all crossed mm-hmm. over, but, um, 
But, you know, once we got to the script stage, um, it was ours. It was ours as a group. We, it was our, we, we had mind head. We all agreed on what the show was. But then you, you got to have a little piece of it. And you could be proud when that episode went on the air. Except that every time someone came up and said, I love that right. line, Josh wrote it. Yeah. That was the only... <laughs> that was the, the one part where everything else, like 90% of a script could be written by you. And then 10% of, you know, like I, polish, you'd be like, oh, and that was Josh. I came out of comedy like Jane did. So all... I I was only familiar with your name being on a script that was mm-hmm. written by like a, a room full of yeah, 12 yeah. people right. and you felt no ownership whatsoever and, and the first time I got to write um, the first time I wrote solo the, um, without one of my wife with my writing partner in comedy and then when I went solo and did Helpless mm-hmm. um, it was extraordinary that somebody wasn't rewriting me that somebody wasn't like was allowing you know, it was it was something that I pitched that got improved in the room from from David and Joss. That that again, and I did my my piece to it, and it made so much of the integrity of what I wrote was still there at the end. And it was that I'd never I hadn't experienced it before, and I I'd done years of network comedies, and I I never it was it was just an amazing That's right. an amazing experience to to have that and and to be able to take pride in, in knowing that's mine that is mine. And like Marty says, on every episode that we all were a part of, we start going, that's ours. That's, you know, and, and it, it, it's unique and never, never had it since. Didn't and have it before or since. As much as I thought I was being a chameleon and writing in Joss's voice, people tell me all the time that they right. could tell whose script it was before the name came up. So we were clearly being allowed our own individual mm-hmm. voices, even though I thought... I was burying it. <laughs> I mean, how wonderful is that? Well, yeah, I mean, it is the, it's the rare, and all of these shows are the rare opportunities, right, for someone who is not the creator of the show to have a voice on yes. the show. Where However, emulating. <laughs> no decent showrunner wants to rewrite. Uh, the mm-hmm. kind that Marty mentioned, yes, they wanted, but no decent yeah. showrunner wants to do any more work than she has to do. And uh, I felt it was my job to write like Joss Whedon. Mm-hmm. And I so respected that pilot, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, that I would get up at 5 in the morning mm-hmm. with a thesaurus for every word. Because what he did, he didn't want to do like modern lingo. because mm-hmm. right. So he created a whole language yeah. for these mm-hmm. kids to have. And, uh, and thought he observed teen language. No, he created it. <laughs> he yeah. totally created yeah. He totally created And you're talking to a lot of staff writers, right? Mm-hmm. And, and this... And it's a tricky job because your job is not to express yourself mm-hmm. per se. Your job is to get the vision of the showrunner if they're worth their weight and to uh, express that and, and write like that, you know? I, that, that's what I think. Yeah. Yeah. No, he that's doesn't ever want to write like him. So many yeah. shows now have Joss's yeah. voice. Yeah, that's right. he had nothing to do with except not, Except it's like except Joss not. Light. Right. Like when yes. they said that they were going to make a, the Joss, uh, the, the new Buffy series or, you know, mm-hmm. or movie or something, yeah. I was just like, yeah. good luck to him. Yeah. <laughs> Joss really, Light is, is... I really saw that in the BBC stuff. The yes. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Also, um, what's the one about the roommates... Um, the three, uh, the vampire. Yes. Oh, I know. Oh, yeah, yeah, being human, which yeah, I thought was really good. The British version was really good, yeah. but you could just see the yeah. tone. Can, can you guys point to, can you get specific on that? What is the legacy that we're talking specific about? Specific much? <laughs> <laughs> that is it? Yeah, yeah, that's it. It's, it's the, the much and the sitch, the short mouth. Mm-hmm. But also, like, being human was, uh, when they told me, the, the British version, I never watched yeah. the American version, and also, like, when they... Uh, 
that I was one of probably many people they came to say, do you want to do this in American? And I was like, no way. It's awesome in, in the BBC version. You guys are going to ruin it. So, <laughs> no, thank you. Um, but because it was, you know, it's a ludicrous premise. So, mm-hmm. you know, Buffy the Vampire Slayer sounds like a dumb thing. I don't want to <laughs> see that. When I saw the billboard, I thought, that's a failed movie that they're going to make into a dumb TV show. <laughs> you know? Um, and Joss also taught me, I think, I don't know if other people took this, but like the benefit of lowered expectations. Yeah. Like part mm-hmm. of the reason he liked that title was because you underestimated <laughs> what you were going to see. And, um, you know, going on Bravo, for instance, is their mm-hmm. first scripted show. I was like, that only helps us. Because, you know, people are not going to think it's even going to be mildly good. If we just are, you know, above mediocre, we're going to get a lot of credit for that, you know. Not saying that I shoot for mediocrity. I'm just saying I, 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 I like the safety of... of um, yeah. But, um, but, yeah, no, I mean, uh, uh, I totally forgot what I was talking about. You nailed it. You stuck it. I stuck it. Um, <laughs> I want to... Uh, one, one thing. Now, of course, the WB wanted to call it... Slayer. Slayer. <laughs> and that was the fight that he won, of course. But, um, you know, they didn't get the nuance and the fun and the lowered expectation of that. I, I'm the exact opposite of Marty, because when the movie came out and, and I saw the poster for the movie, I went, I have to see that. <laughs> I really did. I, I saw, saw the potential. I saw the first man may of that movie uh, <laughs> anywhere. I kind of work. I was, my, I was on my first TV job at the time. And I left. I went with, with a couple other writers and we went to see it. And um, I didn't like it. But. <laughs> uh, and also in regards to the legacy, um, you know, let's talk about those of you who have run rooms and those of you who have not have been strong voices in rooms. Um, I'd like to start by talking about S.H.I.E.L.D., which is kind of a third-generation Whedon show. Mm-hmm. Um, does it resemble the Buffy room in the way it's run? I think it, it does, and it, and it doesn't. I think what's really interesting is that um, Jeff Bell came out of the Angel room as mm-hmm. well, and Jed and Marissa obviously <laughs> obviously have you know <laughs> right I mean, when you say it shares the DNA of Buffy <laughs> um, and so there are certain things about certain things that they, that they understand I think uh, better than than anybody else does about what makes what made Joss's voice work so much and at the same time they're bring some of their own stuff to sure. it too um, so you see a lot of the, the idea of focusing on character more than plot don't do too many moves we don't like you were saying before we don't care about all of that we care about how the characters are affected that's sort of the guiding mantra of the show that comes from them and um, it's it's definitely sort of it fits into the wheelhouse of, of what made Joss's shows great that's great uh, Steve going on to run your own shows what did you take from your early experiences in these rooms well you take so much I mean first and foremost just in a room breaking a story know where you start know where the middle part is and know where you're ending mm-hmm. and everything else you can figure out on the way but if you don't know those three things you're screwed um, and the right. stuff we've talked about about emotion and clarity and not having a bunch of moves uh, on Daredevil recently we were working on a a plot point and you know the writers have been talking about it and I came in and it had become a very convoluted way to get two main characters to dance together <laughs> at a big black tie benefit <laughs> and you know we started talking about it and I'm like you know I love them dancing together but everything else feels like and there's nothing against the WB but it feels like it's a WB kind of plot driven 
you know, here's our needle drop song of what's really popular now. <laughs> and, um, you know, after we started kicking around, there was still a benefit, but, you know, none of our heroes were there. It was a very short scene, and it did only what it needed to do. <laughs> and I think those kind of things, those kind of lessons you take from Joss is don't jump through ten hoops when you mm -hmm. get there with one. Mm. Yeah. Um, Greenwald, I wanted to ask you the same question. In, in running a room, what did you take from these early experiences? Well, I did my damnedest to become Joss. And, and, uh, I really did. And uh, what I took was all the things that uh, Drew and Steve just said. You have to hire the right people is part of it. And the great thing on Buffy was you could be a half-hour writer, you could be an hour writer. All it had to do was be good. You know, and and uh, and he had a great eye, I believe, for talent. And uh, and you know, we built those rooms slowly, both Buffy and Angel. You know, year by year, we got more and more people who could do the show. Uh, what was it? I didn't take the scheduling thing. My show's on schedule because <laughs> I don't want to work after six o'clock. Um, but the idea of don't do it till it's right, and my partner now, the way we work, he's very, because I'm kind of like, hey, I'm going to retire in a couple of years, you know, let's not push it. But he's, like, <laughs> he's like, until it's right, we're not going to, you know, so uh, I think that's the most important thing, you know, don't serve it before it's time. <laughs> um, Goddard, I'm curious about, you know, Working on the stuff that you're working on now, and we could do an hour on Cabin in the Woods, but... And, and, uh, and you should. Listen, we're going. Oh, just not right now. Um, are you able to kind of touch the stuff that you touched in those early rooms on this later work that you're doing, which is on such a bigger scale? Yeah, it definitely spoiled me, I have to say, because because we got to do such bold, audacious things, I, I, I find myself unable to get up for the, you know, the things that are popular now, and so I end up doing stuff like cabin wear, mermen are biting people's faces <laughs> off, because it, it just spoils you. Like, there's a fearlessness <laughs> that we all had, that we all felt about, like, well, why not? Let's do that instead. <laughs> why, why can't we do that? That I, I, I knew, and I knew it at the time, I think we all did, we all knew at the time that it was special, and that it wasn't going to be like this, yeah. so yes. we did, you did appreciate it. But that doesn't mean I don't miss it every single day, because mm. I definitely do. Um, and, and Tracy, Jane, and David, the same question. You know, in the stuff you're working on these days, do you get to, do you get that same thrill? Where do you find that same thrill? Where do you get to touch that same uh, unique experience that you did on those early rooms? Well, I get, with husbands, I do. Mm -hmm. You know, because it's a show I've co-created, and, and it's got that same sense of, like, we're saving the world. <laughs> <laughs> um, saying something important, um, definitely there. No, it, it is hard to. Where do you find that? I guess I, I've been fortunate. I've worked on a, a couple of other shows since the Mutant Enemy shows that that I did get re-excited about mm -hmm. uh, when I was working on Lost and when I was working on Fringe, because they kind of play in that same area that as as. As Drew was just saying, ones where like anything you can do anything you want, you know, if you can if you buy into it. You know, unfortunately, you don't always have the people you're working with or for or, or, or if it's a show that's been on for a while, don't always share that devil may care, like, no, let's just do it. Let's just go crazy and do something. But you do get to have a little bit of that fun and excitement that that was what it was like in the mutant enemy world. 
Then there's other shows I've done, like like 24, where you don't. I mean, there's just no... I, I have to... To be honest, there's no, there's no thrill in writing a thriller that's very down the middle of the road, mm-hmm. where there's no real... I mean, every all the surprises are just... You know, are, are stock surprises mm-hmm. that you would have in a, in a spy thriller. And you don't get to, you know, and I, 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 I keep thinking, fantasizing of, you know, what if, can we do a flashback or can we do a thing? Can we just break the mold here? And of course we can't. Right. And so those are the, those are the times where I, I, I most get, fall into a deep depression and, <laughs> and, uh, and think back fondly of my days working with these incredibly talented people. Um, and uh, I'm just hoping for another show to come along. Or to create a show, or to you know, to be a part of another show in which that kind of sensibility, the kind of wide open world of, of possibilities, is available to to us as writers. I mean, I'm I'm, I'm hoping that's that's still in my future. Well, there, there's some opportunity out there because so many shows now are run by Buffy fans. So I'm, I'm <laughs> once upon a time, Eddie and Adam, who, yeah. who created and run that show, are Buffy fans. And have the Buffy model in their mind, and will often will say things um, that echo Joss because they're fans of Joss. And David Goodman runs our room, the head writer there, who was the writer's assistant at Buffy the whole time we were all there. So, uh, um, or most much of the time. Um, so there is still Buffy blood running in the veins of a lot of. It's all sinking into some guy's belt. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you guys all so much for doing this. Uh, Thank you for 20 years of work, also, uh, and allowing us this opportunity. Thank you very much. Now leaving Nerdist.com. 